0: this morning, would you please stand with me? We're going to read uh, from the scripture this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. If you'd like to follow along, you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screens. Starting in verse 13, it says, then Jesus came up from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. Then Jesus was, when Jesus was baptized, he went, he went up and immediately from the water, uh, the the heavens suddenly opened for him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, you you, Man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and began to serve him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Pastor Brett. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to get into this passage this morning. Before I do, a uh, quick announcement the, uh, Foursquare, the domination that we're a part of, um, has this polity, this aspect of their polity that I think is really cool, and it's called the Annual Report where we uh, are uh, invited to tell the congregation kind of where our finances have been, how we've been stewarding our finances and our resources. And so after the message is done today, um, I'm going to invite our executive pastor, Kate. She's going to come up, and we're going to walk through just how God has blessed our community and how uh, our church council has helped steward our resources. So just so you know, that's going to be coming after Communion. All right, so we are wrapping up our 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we are in a teaching series called When We Pray, and this series is all about prayer. Now, I'll be honest, um, during these three weeks, I didn't do super well on the fasting bit. I was on vacation in Hawaii when the 21 days started, and there was just a lot of good Filipino and Hawaiian food everywhere, so uh, I apologize for that. If you're anything like me, this time of fasting and prayer uh, has been more about praying than fasting. So just know, I'm with you if that's the case, but uh, we've got Lent coming up in just a few weeks, and so if you didn't get to fast in the last 21 days, we've got 40 days of fasting coming up for you. Uh, We're going to have another opportunity. You know, it's interesting. Ideally, fasting shouldn't just be this big thing that we do a couple of times a year. Fasting is supposed to be this rhythm of spiritual engagement that happens regularly in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. The early church carried over fasting traditions from Judaism, so it was common for Christians to fast two days every week of the year. But what is fasting all about, and why do we often pair fasting and prayer together? Well, in fasting, I am setting something down in order to pick something else up. When I fast, I am deliberately allowing myself to go without to experience discomfort and hunger, I am setting down what physically sustains me, in order that I might pick up what spiritually sustains. To remind myself of what spiritually sustains. One of our, our, our four values on helping us as a community follow the path of of uh, following Jesus from fear to love is this concept of holistic spiritual formation. Right? We talked last week about the importance of prayer because we are beings who are always being formed always being shaped by something. And prayer prioritizes the voice which is going to form me in the way of life and in the way of flourishing. And a huge part of spiritual formation are these things that we call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. And these are tools and rhythms that lead me in the way of formation in Christ, which position my soul to be formed by God. And fasting is this powerful staple practice for anyone who wants to be formed more in the likeness of Christ. Now, I'm not a, a pro-faster. Um, that would be Teacher Kim, who's on our staff and teaches our ki- children. She is a pro-faster. In fact, legend has it that she hasn't had any food since 88. And I'm, I'm sure she'll be wrapping that up soon. No, I'm kidding. But um, I, like I, uh, after diving into this passage, it really kind of inspired me. And I really want to be fasting to become more of a regular rhythm in my life. So as we journey through this text, just know that um, I'm journeying alongside you, as, as I always do. We're going to do a bit of unpacking of the story, the context, what it meant, and what it means for us. And then I'm going to leave us with a word as we continue in our series on prayer and prepare for our prayer night, which is tomorrow. And before we begin, I want us to pray together the Lord's Prayer. We're going to recite this prayer out of the CSB translation, which may be a little different than how you've memorized it, but we're going to have the words here on the screen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. All right, so let's unpack a little bit about what's going on here. Jesus is getting baptized, which, does anyone else find that is kind of strange? Jesus is getting baptized. John the Baptist even points this out this is weird. You should be baptizing me. Now, John was baptizing people into this messianic era into an age of the kingdom of heaven. It was this pronouncement that the Messiah had arrived and that this age was about to begin. So repent from your ways and turn to him. One of the biggest staples, one of the biggest um, aspects of baptism is repentance, the turning away of our sins and moving towards God. But Jesus is without sin, right? Like Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything. So why is he getting baptized? Well, there's likely a few things going on with Jesus' baptism. Jesus told John that they needed to do this in order to fulfill righteousness. Jesus was at this moment, he was stepping into this public ministry of being the Messiah. What was about to happen at this baptism was about to confirm and affirm who Jesus was, that he was, in fact, the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. Another thing that's happening here is that this is a public act of humility Jesus is taking on a shame that is not his in order that he might lead his people into new life. This is much like the cross depicted, um, and there's also uh, this this prophecy depicted in, in the suffering man of Isaiah, right? That the punishment that brought us peace would be upon him. You see, Jesus would begin his ministry the same way that he would conclude it, bearing a shame that he didn't earn in order to invite us into a life that we couldn't inherit without him. There's also some biblical parallels happening here. Jesus likes to do that. The name Jesus is actually a transliteration of the Aramaic Yeshua, which comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. So Jesus' namesake is actually Joshua. And the first Joshua we encounter is the one who took over from Moses when Moses died. And John the Baptist, so he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And many centuries before John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, we see Joshua leading the Israelites out of their wandering in the wilderness and into the promised land by crossing the Jordan. So as Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River to deliver them out of the wilderness and into the promised land, now Jesus, Joshua, stands in that same river, ready to lead all of humanity out of sin and death and into new life. As the Israelites crossed the Jordan, they left behind 40 years of wandering and stepped into the promised land. With Jesus, we see this reversal, this exchange, where he's leaving glory with the Father to enter in willingly into 40 days of suffering in the wilderness. Again, we see this imagery of Jesus taking on the suffering of humanity, our suffering, in order that we might inherit his new life. Now, not all scholars, some scholars do, but not all scholars agree with me on this next point, which is that I can't help but notice the parallels of Eden and the garden of Genesis in this story. A couple of times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the the second Adam. And the idea here is that Jesus is fulfilling the original mandate of human beings that Adam and Eve failed to live up to. See, in the garden, God looks upon human beings and he declares that they are very good. And here, God looks upon Jesus and declares that he is beloved. In the Garden of Eden, the Spirit of God broods or hovers over the waters and the chaos of the deep. And here we see the Spirit of God descend like a dove to be over the waters of the Jordan. And we get this beautiful image of the Trinity here in this passage. We see God, who is one God, but also three persons. It's this divine mystery. We see that we see God the Father who speaks from heaven. We see Jesus, who is the human form of God. And we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Now this imagery of the dove leaves a lot of uh, question marks for scholars, but something that some argue is that this imagery is meant to evoke the imagery of Noah in the flood when he sent out the dove to determine whether or not the floodwaters had receded. So in this way, the, the dove was a signal of a new era, that the flood had gone and the new life was to come. And in the same way, the old ways were gone, but the era of the Messiah was upon them. Now, we see uh, also that the Spirit empowers Jesus in this moment. Just like the Old Testament prophets and heroes of old, the Spirit of God comes upon them so that they can do their work. But one might wonder, if Jesus is God, why does he need the Father to bless him? And why does he need the Spirit to empower him? Isn't he God already? Well, that's a really important aspect of this mystery that is the Incarnation. Jesus is the Word made flesh. There's this um, old philosopher's thought experiment, which asks this question: If God is omnipotent, if He's all powerful, if He can do anything, could He make a rock so big that He couldn't lift it? It's kind of this paradox, right? And the theologian's response is yes, if He limits Himself. See, Jesus came in the form of humanity in order to limit Himself, as Paul writes. It's not his equality with God that he uses to his own advantage, but rather he lays down his glory in order that he might sacrifice himself for us, to serve us, that he might identify with us, with our suffering, with our joys, with our hunger, and with our temptation. And by choosing this incarnation, this identity as a human, he draws very close to humanity. And he invites humanity into this union of love that he experiences in the triune Godhead with the Father and with the Spirit. The Trinity exists mysteriously as one God, but also in his essence, because he is three, God himself is relationship. Perhaps this is why Peter can write that, to, that, that the identity of God is love itself, that God is love And there's something profound that Jesus says to his disciples that I can't always wrap my head around. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He invites us into this divine relationship of love and union with God. So Jesus experiences this. We see this beautiful picture. And then he's immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But wait, (laughs) we just read the Lord's Prayer, which directly states and asks God, the Father, not to lead us into temptation. And then James, the brother of Jesus, writes that God does not tempt people with sin. So what is going on here? Well, this is another instance where the translation from Greek into English is just, it's just clumsy. It's hard to wrap our heads around. But perhaps a way to better understand this line in the Lord's Prayer would be to say it like this. Do not let us fall to temptation when we are tested. It's a slightly different connotation. See, the idea here is that when God gives someone a calling, gives someone a mission, gives them a purpose, that there is a testing that they will need to endure. God tests his people all the time. And then in that testing, we often experience temptation. Temptation to turn away from what God has for us. And we experience temptations of several kinds, which we'll unpack in a minute. But it's not God tempting us. Right? It's God testing us, and in that testing, we're allowed to endure temptation. James, the person we just mentioned, even writes that testing is good for us, that it develops perseverance of our faith. So, he's led into the desert, and Jesus um, has begun uh, by being blessed into this messianic purpose, and now he enters into 40 days of fasting and prayer, where he's tempted by the devil. Now, there's some more biblical parallels happening here. Jesus has intentionally stepped into the wilderness with 40 days of fasting, which calls into mind the Israelites, right? Who, after they were delivered from Egypt in slavery, went into 40 years of wandering in the desert. Again, not all scholars agree, but I also see parallels here to Genesis as well, where God speaks in the garden, and then the serpent comes and tries to throw God's words into confusion. In the same way, God speaks to Jesus, calls him beloved, and then the enemy comes to sow confusion into the truths of Jesus when he's vulnerable. So let's talk about the temptations. The first temptation is that of a physical and kind of carnal nature, right? The tempter tells Jesus to turn some rocks into bread. I love the, the weird tongue-in-cheek. After 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. No kidding, right? Of course he'd be hungry. Now, there's this interesting thing that happens when you fast for a long period of time. When you fast for an extended period like this, you can't just jump back into solid foods right away. In fact, if you eat too much food quickly, it could kill you. I knew this pastor who wanted to fast for 40 days. He set out to do this, just water, for 40 days. And he made it a little more than halfway before his doctor told him, if you keep doing this, you're going to die. You're not going to make it to 40. So he started to take it slow and and started to consume calories again. But he had to start with rice broth and then slowly moved from rice broth to vegetable broth. And then finally, soft vegetables and so on and so forth. He had to bounce back. His body had to get used to eating solid food again. So setting aside the fact that eating a loaf of bread after 40 days of zero calories might kill you, we see that the enemy does this to us, right? The enemy dangles these things in front of us when we are the most vulnerable, when we are the most desperate, and it's always to appeal to this strong desire, this strong craving in us. And the problem is, What may seem to satisfy in the moment will always lead to our death and not to our good. That's what the enemy does. But he makes it look like it's a good thing. Of course you want this. Who wouldn't want this? But set aside that practical reality, there's this parallel here, again, to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and they're complaining to God that although he had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, they hadn't given them food. And so this calls back to when God sends down the bread from heaven, which is called what? Manna which translates to, what is it? That's what manna means. And Jesus claps back at the enemy by quoting Deuteronomy. Sorry, I claps back is a young person thing. Um, but probably not now, because I just said it. Um, he, says, he says, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, even back during the Exodus, God was trying to teach his people That there are more important needs to a human being for a human's life than the carnal, than just food. That the soul can be dying even if the body is alive. And here, Jesus demonstrates that he's got his priorities straight. That food means nothing. Food means nothing if if, if what sustains him is not the truth that God has spoken to him. You'll notice that with each temptation, Jesus falls back on the truth of God's word. I love that in the Gospels, it describes Jesus as having to grow into wisdom. Omnipotent God limiting himself so that he must learn. And we know that Hebrew boys in this, in this, in this time, Hebrew children at this time, the scriptures were worked into their psyche. They were, they were immersed in the scriptures. They had to have the Pentateuch memorized by the time they were 12, right? Since Jesus was a small boy, scripture had become second nature to him. So that even in a moment of physical desperation and weakness, it it naturally came up out of him like a spring of living water. This is why the scriptures in Deuteronomy, they commanded the Hebrew people to Shema. There's There's this prayer. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts and on your house and on your city gates. This is intense. He's like, tattoo the scriptures on your face like you need to remember. They didn't actually say that, but but it's figurative, right? Like you have it everywhere. Immerse yourself in the promises of God. The scriptures are always telling God's people, remember, remember, because human beings forget (laughs) all the time. We are prone to forget. Our memories are short. Adam and Eve are given this divine blessing of the garden, and all it takes is one serpent with some clever words to make them forget what God had said. The Israelites, when they're delivered out of Egypt, they see God do crazy things, pillars of fire coming out of the sky, seas being split in two, rods being turned into snakes and all that. And then Jesus has to go away for a couple of weeks. He has to go to a conference and figure out what God's going to do in this leadership summit, right? Comes back and they're worshiping a cow. (laughs) We forget. But Jesus remembers when he's faced with temptation, the word of God is alive in him. I had a music teacher that told me once, don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. Because when you practice so much that it's so second nature, because when you're in a performance, right, there's all kinds of adrenaline. There's all kinds of nerves. If you've only practiced so that you've gotten it right sometimes, those nerves, that adrenaline, that situational environment, it can cause us to stumble and to mess up and miss, but if I've worked that melody into my heart and soul, if, if, if that melody has become a part of me, there are no nerves. There is no situation that can erase those notes from my soul. See, the temptation of the enemy stood zero chance against Jesus because the word of God's truth had become a part of him. And there was nothing else that could come out. Even when enduring this intense physical and mental and emotional stress and desperation, the truth of God's word abided in him. And this is why we intentionally fast. Fasting is training. We intentionally make ourselves hangry. We intentionally make ourselves moody. It creates stress in us so that what's lingering beneath the surface can be revealed. And then we're better poised to offer what we experience to God so that he can shape and form us in his likeness. We get to set down what we think we need in order to receive from God what we truly need. I love how Richard Foster puts it. We said it last week. Bring my wanter more in line with my needer so that I may more want what I need. What we need more than bread is the truth that comes from the word of God. And who is Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is the word that became flesh. He's the bread of life. He is the truth, the life, and the way. Jesus himself is the spiritual food which sustains us. This is part of why we partake communion and we consume it, to remember that it is God's being who sustains us. The second temptation is is to test God, to put himself in peril by jumping off of the temple And so that the angels will catch him. The enemy says the angels will come in and they'll make sure that you don't even strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus again responds with scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy and says that no one should put God to the test. And as I read this, it reminded me of those who mocked Jesus on the cross at the end of Matthew's gospel. Saying, well, he can save others, but he can't save himself, right? And this again highlights this fact that Jesus could have saved himself. He could have summoned angels from heaven, but he limited himself in order to endure the suffering servant, the role of the suffering servant, in order to sacrifice for us. And then the enemy tells Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you will just bow down and worship me. And again, Jesus responds from scripture, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this invitation to give Jesus all the kingdoms is really interesting Many preachers point out that the devil is offering to Jesus what is already his, right? Like, I made the earth, and you're offering me the earth. And although I understand this line of thinking, I think there's, other, there's another layer to this temptation. You see, yes, God is the king of the universe, and he created everything in it, and everything in it belongs to him. But through giving us freedom, through giving us agency, he limited himself to allow us to distort and to pervert what he'd created. That although he's created the earth, we have taken it away and perverted it for our own design. And this is the only way that the enemy knows how to rule. The enemy only knows how to rule through slavery. Slavery to sin, through subjugation. Whereas Jesus... Jesus does not work this way. See, the enemy, he imprisons people in their own pride, their own addictions, their own lusts, their own brokenness. He rules through slavery, but Jesus, he rules out of an invitation for freedom. Jesus is not interested in a shortcut to ruling the world. He doesn't just want his creation to bow down out of obligation, right? In Galatians, it says that it is for freedom that he has set us free. See, the enemy wants to offer shortcuts And those shortcuts will always lead to death. But Jesus rejects those traps, knowing that love has no shortcuts, that love is always a sacrifice. And to worship anything but Jesus is not actually freedom, it's slavery. Slavery that disguises itself as freedom. Freedom which at first, slavery which at first feels like freedom, but then it takes your soul. But the gospel, as Jesus later says in Matthew 10, is this counterintuitive truth that if you want to find your life, you lose it for my sake? Now, I don't want to superimpose our struggles onto this story of Jesus. The story is about the Messiah enduring a testing and a temptation that's specific for his life. But I do believe that there are lessons in his temptations that we need to remember for ours. When we want to hear the voice of God, I just want to know what God says. I want to know what he wants to say to me. I want to hear his voice. We usually want this big baptism moment, right? We want the clouds to part, the sun to shine through, and the spirit to descend like a dove. We want this booming voice to cut through the air and to tell us what to do or what God says. But that's not how God's voice works most of the time. Most of the time, it actually feels more like we're in the wilderness. And in these moments, we need to trust that it's the word of God that's already been planted in us. See, in the garden, we lost sight of our identity, of the truth that God beheld us and declared, this is very good. We forgot our identity and we fell to temptation. But Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, took the blessing of the Father and treasured it in his heart so that when the enemy came to throw his identity into question, it stood no chance. How much have we allowed this truth that we are loved by God, that we are secure in him, that we, need, that we need nothing when we're with him? How much have we allowed that truth to actually form us and shape us so that when we enter into a time of testing, the temptations bear no interest for us because we know who we are. We know who we've been created to be. Jesus didn't need food or water or power. All he needed was to remember who God said he was. Beloved, and if it's true for Jesus, it's true for us. That in a time of testing, what will help us to run away from temptation is to remember what God has said. Why do we fast? To bring our wanters more in line with my needers. and we fill our souls, so often we fill our souls and our bodies what we think we need. But oftentimes these things serve to drown out the voice that we need above all else, the voice of God. Man does not live off of bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. To remind us, we fast to remind us that that what truly sustains us is not food in my belly, but God's word in my heart. Are we listening to the Shema (laughs) Are we immersing ourselves, baptizing ourselves in the truth of God's word and his scriptures so that when we're tested, we know what he said? So that when we, can't, if we feel like we can't hear his voice, we already know what he's saying. Are we hungry for the word of God? Are we desperate? Do we feel like we need it? Right? Psalm 42 gives us this imagery of a deer that pants for living water. When's the last time you felt that desperate for the word of God? To think, if I can't hear his voice, then I will die. Do we feel that desperation? And see, Satan's always going to try to offer you the easy way out. He's going to try to offer you a shortcut in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your testing. Turn these, breads to, this bread, this, turn these rocks into bread. Here, you can rule this way. Fasting reminds us that there's no shortcut to sacrifice. The only way through is through. <laughs> sacrifice is always painful, always uncomfortable, and always it is the most loving. Dr. Craig Keener, he says this about this passage. The devil offered Jesus the kingdom without the cross, a temptation that has never lost its appeal. That's so like the enemy. To offer us shortcuts, but every time the shortcut will lead to death. There is no shortcut to joy or peace or faith or any of the fruit of the Spirit. Shortcuts fail every time. Every time we try to get what we need our own way, it will fail. We need to abide. We need to lay down what we think we need in order to pick up what we truly need. So, friends, during this time of prayer and fasting, as we conclude this 21 days of prayer and fasting, Let's not conclude our time of prayer and fasting. Let's continue to bring these principles and these truths with us into our lives. Let's regularly put ourselves in a place of desperation to remember that we really need the word of truth that comes from the mouth of God more than anything else. And I know that there are some of us physically here, we have things, we have conditions where fasting food's not an option. I get it, I understand. God gets it too. But are we something that's really been been sticking out to me recently? I'm in a season of life where I'm finding myself tired. Right? I'm sure a lot of us are there. I have two kids under seven. I just started here a little over a year and a half ago, and you guys are a lot of work. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. I love this. And I'm in grad school. Right? Like I'm just in a season where like I'm just doing a lot. I'm tired. And I felt God convicting me the last few weeks like, you know, some of that, Lane, some of that's your fault. (laughs) Some of that you're doing that to yourself. Because I'm trying to sustain myself with things I think will make me feel better, right? That little device that we keep in our pockets provides endless streams of entertainment and distraction, right? We're going to take a time to reflect and pray, and I want you to ask God, what do I need to put down? What do I need to set aside in order to pick up what I truly need? What is getting in the way? What, do I, what have I felt, fallen for the temptation to believe that it's sustaining me, but really it's taking away from your voice? What shortcuts am I trying to take in my life? I want you to think about these things with the Holy Spirit. Invite him to reveal those things to you so that you can draw closer to God as he has drawn close to us. And that's what actually what brings us to communion. You can take out your elements and if you have yet to proclaim Jesus as your Lord, I want you to simply regard these in your hand and to refrain from taking them for now. This is something holy that we do as followers of Jesus that we take very seriously. And if you at any time want to make that decision to follow Jesus, we're going to celebrate and throw a party with you. And, uh, but until then, hold these in your hand as a reminder that Jesus is, has drawn close to us. Oh, and if you don't have it, raise your hand. We've got, we've got some auditorium hosts handing them out. Jesus was, God was so desperate to draw close to us that he became one of us to invite us into this union of love that he has with the Father and with the Spirit. This is what sustains us. We consume these reminders of his body and his blood to embrace the truth that this is what we need. More than anything else, we need the saving grace of Jesus. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this and remember me. And in the same way he took the cup, and said, this cup is my blood and a new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray for us. We'll take a few minutes to reflect. And then we'll transition into our time of the annual report. Lord, as we have sat at your feet this morning and listened to your word. I pray that it would work its way into our hearts and minds. That we would be formed deeply by your truth that your word would be what sustains us. Would you reveal to us what the enemy has convinced us is good for us, but is truly getting in the way of what you have? May we set aside what we think we need. May you bring our wanters more in line with our needers. In your name we pray. Amen.